When your last name is Barris, the kids are going to joke about you. And this started for me uh, probably, man, I guess about second grade. At some point around second grade, maybe third grade, the kids discovered that if you kind of mess around with my last name a little bit, you can like fit a cuss word in there. And that was like when cussing was starting to get fun or cool or whatever. And so the kids would like say, oh, and they'd say, Barris, but they would say bear, and they would kind of extend out the last part, and then they'd make this other word out of it, and, um, you know, they just thought that was really hilarious. I mean, in second grade, man, that's the funniest thing ever, um, and so, you know, they would, they would maybe from time to time, they would call me that. As adults, um, I've also had other adults uh, call me that, and usually, it's like a friend of mine, and, and usually the way it'll happen is that we're hanging out, and then they'll just have this moment where they discover it, and then they're like, oh, dude, uh, your last name is, and then they'll, they'll, you know, say it. And then when they do, we just laugh and laugh and laugh. It's so funny when we do that. It's just, it's just so like, I'm like, oh, it's so creative. How did you come up with that? You know, and I, and I usually say something really passive, you know, like uh, you and the kids in second grade have the same sense of humor. You're so clever, you know, and they, it's hilarious, right? We just have good laughs with it. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I've, so there, there, that's a label that has been sort of put on me over the years. And whenever you have children and you name them, you start having to think about, well, what name we're going to give them. And then you start imagining what the other kids are going to call them because of that name, right? And you go, oh, we're going to name her Hannah. And it's like Hannah Banana, you know, or whatever. Like you start thinking through all the things that they'll be called. Um, and you do what you can, but you, you cannot predict what a child is going to, how a child's going to mangle your child's name, you know. So uh, for our son, our middle son, Declan, it's spelled D-E-C-L-A-N. We decided not to give it the proper Irish spelling, which would be like D-E-A-G-H-L-A-N. I'm like, ain't nobody going to pronounce that right. So we just went with D-E-C-L-A-N. And I, so Declan, like, that sounds, it's easy enough, right? And I remember... Uh, after he was born, a woman called us, and I guess she had seen it in writing or something, and she didn't know how to pronounce it, and she said, so you named him Delcon? And I was like, that sounds like a chemical company. We did not name him a chemical company named Delcon. Uh, but you got to think through those stuff. Not just, and, and so those names kind of get put on you, not just the name that you were given by your parents, but other names get put on you over the years, right? Nerd, geek, unathletic good at math, terrible at math, you know, those kinds of things, those kind of labels get attached to us and, we, and we, we start to believe them. Someone said something to us a long time ago and we start to believe them and in many cases the things that are said to us or about us or the labels that are put on us are lies. But we believe them when we start to act out of them and function out of those, those spaces. And when we believe lies about ourselves, something in, in us gets torn and tattered and shattered. You see, I believe, and in this series, In His Image, we're talking about the idea that creatures, that, that mankind, we are created by our creator in his image, that he puts this divine spark, he breathes his breath into us, and there's something powerful and profound about that. And, and, and that image of God gets a little bit under attack over the course of our lives. I want, I want you to see what God intended for us and who he intended us to be. And to do that, let's go all the way back to Genesis. We looked at this last week, but I want to dig into it a little more. Genesis 1, after God has created the earth and he's created animals and plants and trees and all that kind of stuff, uh, he puts his crown jewel of creation, which is mankind, men and women, and he puts us on the earth 
And, and listen to how it's described in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So first of all, it says, let us make man in our image. This idea that God in his own self exists, Father, Son, and Spirit. He exists in this kind of community uh, not just in a, sing, a singular thing, but, the, but it's one, but it's three. It's this kind of weird idea of the Trinity that historians have been arguing and theologians have been arguing about for a couple millennia. I'm not going to solve it for you right now. But the idea that God exists in community and he invites man and woman and mankind to, to join him in that. And he says, let us make man in our image. And he breathes his spirit into mankind. And this makes us fundamentally different than the animals. Now, I've been like not a pet owner my whole life until the last two years or so. And so we are now dog people in our house. We have a dog. And I know some of you are dog people and cat people and all that kind of stuff, and you love your pet. And I always was just kind of, eh, whatever, you know, aunt pets, uh, who cares, you know. And then we have one, and now, like, she's really sweet, and it's great, and she loves me. And, I, I mean, I think she does. I don't know what she loves, but she's a big fan of me in some way. Um, and it's kind of melted my, my, my like, cold stony heart about, about animals, and so I'm like, oh, this is kind of great, and I, and I get why people are into that, but here's the distinction. My dog does not have a soul. I know when you peer into your dog's eyes, you think you're looking right into their souls, but mostly they just see you as a food source or like someone's going to, you know, it's, it's not quite the same. Uh, people, the distinction between humanity and everything else on the earth, every other thing of God's creation is that we have the breath of God in us. This image, we have this divine spark, this peace of God has been, has been poured into us. And this makes us something very different. Um, and, and we are image bearers. In fact, the way God describes it here, God created man in his own image and the image he created them, male and female. There's, this, there's, this, uh, there's these two sides of the image of God being poured out into the male and the female, uh, and there's a complementarity that happens there. That these things work together, and they're supposed to work together in creation. And so when men and women come together, particularly in the idea of Christian marriage, you see this beautiful, full expression of, of the image of God, that the image of God is being expressed there in marriage um, as, as male and female come together as we reflect his image. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So what, that's who we are. What are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? If you read on to the next verse, it says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over levi- every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, hey, I've got a job for you to do. Um, I want you to uh, be fruitful and multiply, make more of you. I'm going to start with you guys. I'm going to give you the, the, the foundational, the tools, the building blocks. I want you to make more. I want you to have babies and make more of this earth and populate the thing and kind of fill it out. So I'm starting with you, and you guys are going to kind of go from there. Um, that's an interesting idea, and when I thought about it, I, I wondered, like, why does God say, go make babies, basically, like be fruitful and multiply? Why do we have to be told to do that? But if you think about it, we kind of do need to be told to do that, or at least reminded to do that, because I don't know that naturally we would all just make, uh, make children and, and raise them and all that, but God wanted us to know very early on, hey, there's a legacy piece here. You're going to continue this thing on. It's going to keep going, and you need to keep uh, pr- reproducing and making more in, in this earth. This is also partly why, if you look around the world today, the most religious places in the world have the most children 
And your most secular countries in the world and secular cultures in the world do not have many children. So I guess this means we need to be told, or at least we need to be reminded, or we need to tie the idea of making more of us, we need to tie that into something greater than ourselves. And you're seeing that all over the world. So God says, make more. And, and that can be having babies. It could be, man, adopting children and, and raising up children, taking care of this next generation and, and kind of making that happen. That's, a, that's an incredible thing. And he says, um, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and animals and all that. Basically, take care of the place that you're in. Don't trash it. Don't make a mess of this. Um, take care of it. Take care of the animals that are here. Take care of the environment that I have placed you in. And so this is what we have been given. This is what, at our core, the image of God in us looks like. We have this divine stamp in, in us that we reflect God, and we have been given a, a job. We were made to make. We are created to create. We're created to make something out of this place. That means in your job this week, when you go to work and you make something, you are participating, in a sense, you are participating with God in the building out of this place. I don't know if God had spreadsheets in mind when he said this, but if you make a spreadsheet this week, you are building something out. You're making something happen here. You are, you are contributing to the ongoing uh, building out of the world that we're in, and that's, a, that's a, a great thing. So it goes really well there at the beginning through Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Listen to the way Genesis 2 ends, and it describes Adam and Eve. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Those were the good old days. This is the best as this got. We sort of peaked here. Um, I'm not advocating that we return to the nudity part. We don't know, just know. Um, that does, that's not a thing. But um, maybe the key thing to, to, to kind of lock in on here is that they were there and they were not ashamed. Imagine feeling not ashamed. Imagine not having guilt, shame, angst, anxiety, depression, struggle, pain, disappointment, all of that stuff, they don't have it. They're in a garden. It's good. They love each other. It's good. They're the best looking thing each, each of them have ever seen. There's no comparison. It's just awesome. They've got animals. Things are going well. I mean, it, it, is, it is a good scene. They are comfortable in their own skins. And in our original state, the way God designs us to be, he designs us to be comfortable who we are made in his image. But things go awry in, in chapter 3. And look at the very next verse because uh, a, a, new, a new being is sort of introduced here um, that, that, that starts to pull things aside. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, historically, Judeo-Christian teaching has taught that this is Satan showing up in this snake form. And Satan shows up as another, another divine character, another person in, the, in, in, in this entire drama here. And Satan shows up to God's greatest creation and begins to cast doubt, which is what he does. He shows up and says, man, did God really say you can't have any tree in this garden? Which is not true. That's not what God said at all. And Eve's going to kind of correct him here in a minute. But isn't that what Satan does to us? He comes along and says, did God really say that about you? Come on. Did God say you're the apple of his eye? No way. Did God really say you're beautiful? 
No. Did God say you're enough the way you are? No. There's no way that's true. You've got to be more than that. This is what Satan does. He comes along and casts the, the doubt. And when we start believing those lies that he brings, the image of God in us gets a bit distorted. It gets tattered. It gets, in fact, shattered. And we start to believe that God doesn't really love us and that he doesn't have our best interests in mind. So how does the image of, us, uh, image of God in us get shattered? I think there's three primary ways in our culture today that this happens. Number one, the image of God gets shattered by the mirror. Michelle Graham wrote a, a kind of funny and interesting book about growing up as a woman uh, year, some, some years back, and the book was called Wanting to Be Her. And she describes what happened that in 1959, a new kid moved in on the block and changed her life. And I'll show you the picture of her. This is who showed up in America in 1959. It's Barbie. And Michelle Graham talks about relating to Barbie and how difficult that is, that every girl grew up playing with this little doll. And, 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 and somehow Barbie was then held up as the standard of the image of perfection for women, which is odd because if you actually look at the proportions of Barbie, for her to have his legs as long as she does, she would have to be over seven feet tall. Um, she would have to be missing several ribs and some internal organs to be who, that, 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 to be who she is. And yet uh, generations, generations of women grew up thinking this is what uh, it looks like to be a woman. Um, and, it's, and it's challenging. Michelle Graham writes in her book, she says this, as I grew into adulthood, I left Barbie behind. Unfortunately, I struggle with the belief that unless I am physically perfect, I somehow am not as valuable as everybody else. Barbie moved out and Victoria's Secret moved in. Yeah, there's nothing quite like a glance at a Victoria's Secret catalog to invoke a flood of insecurities and feelings of disappointment. And some of you know exactly what she's talking about. In fact, the studies show that 70% of women feel feelings of depression when they read a women's fashion magazine for three minutes. And it's not just limited to women. Men have this as well. It just shows up in a little bit of a different way. You ever go to the gym and you notice that at the gym they have like that big wall of mirrors near the weights and all that? And I guess the idea is so you can look at your form. And I've been in there before, and let's say I'm doing bicep curls, right? And you're sitting there, and I got like, I don't know, 40s or whatever, and I'm grabbing 40s, and I'm like, and I'm just like, you know, and you're doing the thing, and then you can look over in the mirror, and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, and you're like checking your form, and you're like, man, that's getting, that's getting, yeah, look at that, like, I think that's a little bit different, how's that looking back there? And you're like doing this thing, and you're like, man, I am ripped, you know? And you start feeling that, you look in the mirror, and then inevitably, that guy shows up. And you know that guy at the gym, the guy whose shirt is always cut like from here to here in a big circle here and here. He's not wearing sleeves. He's got that open bit on the side. And, and always that guy is the guy who grunts really loud when he works out. You know, you know the guy I'm talking about? He's in every gym. I don't know why. He's got a membership everywhere. But that guy shows up. And inevitably what happens is you're sitting there lifting 40s and you look in the mirror. You're like, I'm, I'm ripped. And that guy shows up and he grabs like 120 and he's sitting there doing it. And you're like... I'm not ripped, I'm ripped off. I've been ripped off here. Like, I don't, I thought I had something going on, but this guy, right? This is what happens to us. We believe, the, we, we end up believing the lies that we're somehow um, not enough. Our image gets shattered when we look into the mirror. You know, the, the mirror is a funny thing. A mirror only, technically, a mirror only shows you what is. 
If you have broccoli in your teeth, you look in the mirror, oh, I got to get that, you know. Your hair's not right, oh, let me fix that, let me look in the mirror. All a mirror can do is tell you what is, but that's not how we use it, right? We use a mirror with all sorts of judgment. When we look in the mirror, we go, I am, oh, I am too old looking, I am too skinny, I'm too fat, I'm too tall, I'm too short, my nose is weird. Like, these are all the judgments that come when we look in the mirror. And when we start believing that stuff, something kind of breaks inside of us. And so what we do is we go seek out anyone else who will make that feel better for us. I don't like it when I look in the mirror, but if you will think I'm beautiful, that will be enough. If you think I'm good, then we're good. And so we chase after that. To, let me find the one relationship that will validate me and tell me that I'm enough. Let me chase after education. Let me chase after career. Anything where people will throw me money or give me accolades or something just so that I can feel better about who I am so that when I look in the mirror, it doesn't hurt so much. And we chase after all of that stuff and it, it doesn't work. It leaves us feeling empty. What's the way out of that? Well, I, I think if we could at least, in a start here, and we'll pick this up more next week, but if we could at least start believing the truth about us. Here's Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And what I'm telling you is, while that is true of Jeremiah, it is true of you too. No, you're not a prophet to the nations probably. But before you were formed in the womb, in some way you stood before God and he said, you are enough. You are good enough. You are beautiful. You are loved. You are accepted as you are, as I made you. I made you very good. In the Old Testament, when it describes in Genesis 1, when it describes the creation of the world, it says the animal's good, the plant's good, the, the tree is good. All this stuff is described as good. And then when humanity is made, God said, this is very good. This is what God speaks over you. This is the image of God in you. He says, it is very good. And if we could believe that, believe that truth before we ever step in front of a mirror, how might that change us if we, if we felt like, oh, actually, I, I am loved the way I am. That is, that is the truth. So the image of God in us gets shattered by all our time in front of the mirror. Number two, the image of God gets shattered by our success. You would think it's pain that would damage the image of God in us. You would think that pain and doubt would rock us, and they do, right? You go through hard times, you go through suffering, you go through disappointment, you start asking all those questions. Does God actually love me? Is he fair? Does he care? Is he there? Like the kind of classic questions that we will ask when we go through hard times, and I get it. And that is honestly a very normal and and. And I would say an acceptable reaction to pain, we're going to have to work through it, but it is a normal reaction to, to, to when we don't have success. But I think what also shows up for us is when we do have success, it can also cause some damage to us in our lives. You see, we live in a very achievement culture. From early on, you're told to be something, to accomplish something, to make something of yourself, to, to win in some way. It seems like, and maybe this has changed some since when I was a kid, um, maybe, maybe not, but it sure seems like even in elementary school, we're kind of treating elementary school like it's early SAT prep, you know, like you, you're going to accomplish. And then sports, you know, we treat like our eight-year-old, like they're going to get a scholarship that day or something when they're eight or like they're, they're, they're training. So we, we put all of this pressure on kids, achieve get the grades. If you're good at sports, you're going to be a sports person. Um, and there's this pressure in our culture that says we're supposed to be something. 
Um, and, and, and it's hard, and it goes on into adulthood. I wish pastors were immune to this, but we're not. When you get together with a group of pastors, when we talk, we talk, I don't know, nerdy pastor stuff, I guess, but, but a lot of times what comes up, people just talk about, like, oh, how's your church doing? And, 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 and it becomes like a numbers thing for pastors. Oh, how many people are showing up at your church? Even if your church is, like, 400 miles away, I'm just like, oh, well, they have more numbers of people that are, there's more people coming to their church than our church, and oh, no, and this whole thing goes on inside you, you know, where you want to compare and you want to see how successful you are. I had a friend who's a pastor, church planter, and he said another church planter would text him every week and be like, how many people came today? You know, like, they're comparing numbers or whatever, and he's like, "Ah, I just don't know if I feel comfortable with it, and like, um, as much as it kind of grosses me out, like, I get it, I get why we want to compare ourselves and why we want to have success. Um, and, I, and there's probably something similar for you in, in, in what, whatever you do. Um, and it's so easy for us to, uh, for something to break inside of us when we so chase after success. Um, how can we be healthy about it? Um, quarterback Trevor Lawrence is the quarterback for the Clemson Tigers who won the national championship this year. And when I saw his picture, I said, if this guy's name is not Sunshine, there's something wrong with the universe. This guy totally needs to be named Sunshine. Slap a helmet on him and he's to go. Um, well, he wins the national championship. And I want you to hear what he said. Maybe you saw this. I, I was really surprised at how he articulated this. But listen to what he said about it. He said, football's important to me, but it's not my life. It's not the biggest thing in my life. I would say my faith is. That just comes from knowing who I am outside of that. No matter how the, how the big the situation is, it's not going to define me. I put my identity in what Christ says, who he thinks I am, and who I know that he says I am. Like I said, it really does not matter what people think of me or how good they think I play. That does not really matter. That has been a big thing for me in my situation, just knowing that and having confidence in that. And I heard that, and I thought, man, Trevor Lawrence has got his head on better at age like 20 than a lot of adults I know. He's talking about being confident and secure, even when he's successful, even when he's reaching the, the, the top of his field. He's saying, I'm not going to be defined by that. My identity is going to be rooted in who I am. Um, because when we allow success to define us, it's a dangerous thing and can be damaging to us because when that success is taken away, if you are what you do, what happens when what you do goes away? Who are you then? It's a very dangerous thing. The Bible has examples of this. You, you may think of the Bible as a book of heroes, but if anything, it's a book of villains or it's a book of very complicated people who don't fit easily into categories. And so you see a lot of people in the scripture who wrestle with success. And uh, one guy, the Apostle Paul, who I would argue after Jesus is the most prominent Christian person who ever lived. He started churches and he, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul um, talks about his success and what it meant to him and, and sort of brags on his history. And look at what he says. He said in Philippians chapter 3, he says, though I myself have, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he's going to list his credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, I would argue that that's not his doing. Like, he, yes, he was eight years old when that happens. I don't know how you put that on your resume, but he does. But he's trying to establish how Jewish he is. Uh, of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to this. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, yeah, I've got a resume too. I had success. I did stuff. But it's all garbage now. It doesn't matter. What matters is my identity in Christ, that I am rooted and established in him and not allowing all the other trappings of success to, to pull me down. Paul realized uh, this, I've heard this quote, says failure is to succeed at things that don't really matter. And Paul realized that he had climbed a ladder in his life and it was leaning against the wrong building. He had been succeeding at something that ultimately doesn't really matter. And so he said, I gotta, I'm going a different way and I'm gonna be rooted in what Christ says about me, not what the culture says. And for a lot of us, that's where we are or at least that's where we have been. We've been climbing up ladders to things that don't necessarily matter. And it damages the image of God in us because we start believing that we are what we do, especially if we're successful. And there's, there's, there's a shattered thing that happens inside of us when we do that. So the image of God gets shattered also by success, and then finally, the image of God gets shattered by relationships. I want to go back to the serpent and Adam and Eve, and I want you to kind of see the relational brokenness that comes out of that. Let's pick it back up, chapter 3, verse 1 in Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, come on. What a killjoy God is. Did he really, like, take away all your fun? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, come on, for real? That's not going to happen. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He just doesn't want you to have all the fun. He just wants to keep all the knowledge for himself. He's keeping something from you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is where it goes awry for humanity. And this is always looked at or thought of as this is a breaking of God's rules. God gave them one rule. You had one rule, kids. Do whatever you want. Have a good time. Take care of things. Um, Just don't eat from that one tree. And Satan comes along and is like, actually, that one tree is where all the magic is. You got to go eat from that one tree. And he's been saying that same kind of lie to us over and over and over. God uh, is not to be trusted. God is actually keeping all the good stuff from you. He doesn't want you to have. He's trying to ruin your fun, therefore. Any boundary that God has placed, mm, right? Satan's been doing that thing all along. And it's not that in this situation, it's not that that, that there was a breaking of God's rule. There was, but that's not the problem. The problem is it broke God's heart. There's a break in the relationship between God and man. 
in this, in this situation. And not only between God and man, it becomes a broken down relationship between each other. You see, when God comes uh, to deal with this situation and, and Adam and Eve are hiding because they're suddenly ashamed, they're feeling shame for the first time, God comes to the man, God comes to Adam and says basically what's going on, like what, what just happened here, and Adam says, it's not my fault, it's Eve's fault, it's the woman that you gave to me is what Adam says. So not only is he throwing her under the bus, he's sort of indirectly throwing God under the bus too. Like, I didn't do it, she did it, and you gave her to me, so it's kind of like you did it too. You know, like, this is where Adam goes. He abdicates his responsibility to take care of his, his family uh, and, and throws the blame elsewhere. And there's a breakdown in the relationship between them and God and between them and each other because now they're a little bit at odds with each other. And this continues out through generations. They have children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel over a, a jealousy thing. And the sin just starts to work its way out throughout uh, humanity. We are relational creatures. And so when our relationships uh, break, it becomes devastating to us. And, and it becomes devastating to something that's very deep inside of us. Especially when the relationships that break are the core ones. Like when you're a child... The most important relationship you have is with your parents. When you're in your 20s, some of the most important relationships that you're going to have are with your close friends. And when you're older, maybe when you're married, one of the most important relationships you're going to have is with your spouse or when you have children of your own. There's a, there's a strong bond there. And when those important relationships snap or break, um, it damages something inside you. When your dad walks out of your house at 11 years old and says, I, when you're 11 and he says, I, I, I don't want to be with you guys anymore, there's something inside you that goes, oh, maybe I'm not that great or maybe I wasn't enough for him to hang out and, and you don't necessarily read the situation correctly and there's something in that breaks. When your close friends betray you in your 20s, uh, there's, a, there's a deep wound there. When your spouse walks out and says, you're no good and I don't want to be with you anymore, you start to believe and something in you gets damaged you start to believe that you're not good. And it's a vicious cycle. When you are burned by relationships, what happens? You go, I don't trust God because I went into this other relationship and I got burnt there. And I don't trust people again very much. And the way you'll say that as an adult is you'll say, I have trust issues. I don't trust God. I don't trust people. And if you don't trust God, then you don't accept his love. You don't believe what he says about you and your identity. You don't accept his grace for you. You think you're unlovable because someone came along and the message they communicated to you in that relationship is, I'm leaving you because you're not worth it. And you start to believe you're not worth it. And when you think you're unlovable, you will seek out relationships with other people who also think you're unlovable. And guess how those end? Badly, you get burned again and the cycle continues. You continue to believe you're not worth it and that you don't trust. And there's, there's a brokenness that happens there that goes deep into your core. Um, and, and, and it becomes a, 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 an image problem, an identity problem. Even good relationships can have a bit of an identity problem with them. Not just the broken ones. There, there's, a, there's a challenge for us similar to success. There's a challenge for us if our relationships are good, if our core relationships are great. There's a challenge there where we can take those great relationships and make them everything in our lives. The, the, the word for that in the Bible is idolatry 
when you take anything, it could be a good or a bad thing, but you, when you take anything and make it the ultimate thing, when you put it in a place higher than God, that's, that, that can be very lethal to our souls. That can damage the image of God in us. So if, if our relationship with a spouse is so good, we kind of make that the ultimate, or our relationship with our kid, when you make your children the ultimate, uh, there's, there's a real danger there. There's a real damage that can be done when, when we do that. And so the image of God ends up getting shattered in us with, with our relationships, good or bad. And so maybe the question, I can't answer this for you, but maybe the question you need to ask yourself is, am I making this relationship everything for me? Am I making this relationship everything for me? Um, and, and for some of us, it's a relationship we're in. For others, it's the longing to be in a relationship. We're making that the ultimate thing in, in our lives. So what do we do about that, all of this? The mirror, relationships, success. Um, what do we do about this shattered and tattered, broken and bruised image of God in us that's, that's a result of all this stuff that's happened? Um, well, uh, one, we're gonna, that's what we're gonna spend the whole week, next week talking about that. So we can't unpack this quickly and easily. So we'll, we'll spend all next, next Sunday, we'll kind of, put a bow on this and kind of wrap it all up and say, okay, how do we restore the image of God that is in us? But for now, let me give you this one thing. Um, there's a great verse in Colossians chapter 2. This again comes from Paul. And I don't know if you're a memorize the scripture kind of person, but there's a huge advantage to memorizing the scripture, especially in moments when you are most tempted. That's actually what Jesus did when he was tempted. He quoted scripture back. There's In these moments where things are stressful and hard, if you have the scripture um, tip of your tongue kind of like right there in your memory, uh, it can be a very powerful thing. And I don't know if you've in any habit or practice of memorizing scripture, but here's one I want to give you because I think it's really helpful. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See to it. This is Paul putting the responsibility on us. Look, the world's going to say a bunch of crazy and in many cases stupid stuff. It's swirling all around you at all times. There's lots of voices. And Paul says, don't let anybody like take you captive through that. Like throw you into like mental, emotional, spiritual jail through philosophy, through ideas, through worldviews that actually are just hollow. There's nothing in there. They sound good to us. Oh, that sounds about right. But it's empty. It's deceptive. Paul says, don't let people grab you with that stuff. And so if we're going to un unwind the lies that we've been told and the labels that have put on us, we're going to have to sort of dislodge that stuff with some truth. But first step is to just be, on, be alert, to, to think about it, to, to examine our hearts, to think well about what's happening in culture around us. Uh, we'll pick that up next week. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, the image of God is alive in us, and in many cases it's um, been shattered and, and, and bruised, but God, I believe it can be restored, and I pray you, you do the work in us, that we will examine what lies we have believed, and we will allow your truth to dislodge those. Um, God, I thank you for the image 